how do you make the world a more just and peaceful place? Where did you learn to become a U.S. diplomat? What did peace-building efforts look like in post-apartheid South Africa in the 90s? The Honorable Aaron S. Williams, former Peace Corps Director and Senior Advisor Emeritus at RTI International, answers these questions and more. I'm your host, Hadil Ali. Welcome to Driving Impact. Driving Impact, an exclusive insight into the personal backgrounds and careers of trailblazers on the front lines of policy. Welcome, Aaron. Thank you so much for being here. I'm glad to be here today at CSIS. It's a real pleasure. I've always enjoyed my time here. Pleasure to, to host you here today. Aaron, let me start off by asking you, what did 10-year-old Aaron Williams want to be when he grew up? 10-year-old Aaron Williams. Well, I grew up on the south side of Chicago, mm-hmm. a working class family. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father worked at the general post office and my mother was a dental assistant and mm-hmm. secretary. And uh, I was always focused on education because my mm-hmm. parents thought education was absolutely essential. Mm-hmm. My mother was laser-like focused on education. As a matter of fact, I went to four different elementary schools in the public school system in Chicago wow. as my mother constantly sought out the best teachers. Mm-hmm. So the, my role models and what I thought I wanted to be when I grew up was a teacher. Mm-hmm. I really I saw a lot of good teachers in Chicago. Mm-hmm. My mother reinforced that. We had uh, great respect for teachers in our household, and so I thought there couldn't be anything better than to be a teacher when I grew up. And you were a teacher for a little bit, is that right? I was a teacher for a little bit in Chicago, that's right. And I've actually, I've always taught throughout my career Mm -hmm. in business, government, and in the nonprofit sector. I've continued to lecture and teach, and I'm an adjunct professor at a couple universities right now. And what did you teach out of curiosity? Geography. Geography. And that led me to my career, actually. Yeah. And you've had such a fascinating career with over four... 20 years uh, working in the Foreign Service. Mm-hmm. And Aaron, you, you talked a little bit about your background growing up in the South Side of Chicago, mm-hmm. uh, but also being the first in your family to attend college. Mm-hmm. How did that unique background both inform, but also shape your trajectory as a diplomat? Well, I think that I learned my initial diplomatic skills on the South Side of Chicago. Mm-hmm as I maneuvered my way through different neighborhoods, different gangs, mm-hmm. trying to make sure that nobody took my lunch money at school. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was very much involved in sports, uh, baseball and basketball. Mm-hmm. That was always a good thing to do because that gave you, number one, people respected you if you could play ball. Mm-hmm. And secondly, it gave you access to a lot of different groups. And so I think my early diplomatic skills were honed on the south side of Chicago. And uh, it turned out to be something very important in my career, without a doubt. Yeah. Also, I was involved in uh, in different kinds of activities to keep me off the streets. Uh, I was in <laughs> Boys and Girls Club, mm. I, Boy Scouts, uh, mm. the YMCA. I got involved in a number of youth leadership activities, mm-hmm. which uh, really you know gave me a good perspective and a chance to see a lot, uh, really a, a cross section of people in Chicago. Yeah. I can definitely relate to the sports mm-hmm. fees that you mentioned. Aaron, I played tennis growing up and ended mm-hmm. up playing. Uh, Tennis in college as well, mm-hmm. and it really does teach you uh, yeah. tremendous skills that, that you can utilize in, in your professional career. So you obviously were very good. <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> Have you played tennis? I played tennis a lot, yeah, but I wasn't as good as you were. I didn't play in college. <laughs> yeah, but maybe we can play sometime. We'll find out. So Erin, you were a Peace Corps volunteer, mm-hmm. but what people know you for is being the Peace Corps director mm-hmm. from right. 2009 to 2012. But mm-hmm. actually years before that, you were Peace Corps volunteer mm-hmm. in the Dominican Republic, 
um, if I'm not mistaken. Could you tell us a little bit about how was it like starting off as a volunteer in the organization and then mm -hmm. coming back years later to ultimately lead this prestigious organization? Well, first of all, the Peace Corps was transform transformative for me. Mm. It changed everything in my life and everything that I've done career-wise and uh, in terms of my personal life and my family emanated from Peace Corps service. Mm. So I, I made a decision uh, that I was going to become a Peace Corps volunteer, and I had to keep it secret because in my circle of people in Chicago, nobody thought that was a good idea. I'm the first person to graduate from college, now I'm gonna go off and volunteer in some place that nobody even knows where it is, <laughs> the Dominican Republic. I vaguely knew that we had invaded the Dominican Republic mm. in 65. And, uh, but I just thought I'd, I was very young when, when President Kennedy was mm -hmm. president, and I had heard some of his speeches, and uh, I just thought this was a chance to serve your country, mm -hmm. to learn about a new culture, to learn a, learn a new language, and I just thought it was a great idea. But Fortunately for me, I, uh, my mother thought it was a great idea, and she mm -hmm. had a weighted vote in my family. So I joined the Peace Corps, and uh, so I arrived at San Diego State College uh, in my training. I'm mm -hmm. a group of 100. I'm the only African-American in the group. Mm -hmm. And I quickly found out that I was in with a great group of people. People were idealistic who wanted to make the world a better place. Uh, we bonded quite quickly in training. And it was quickly, it was obviously, it was apparent to me right away that this, this was the right decision. And so I went to the Dominican Republic. I was a teacher trainer because I was a certified teacher in Chicago, and I was tested right away. I was 19 years old, and I was given responsibility for 20 teachers. I was going to help them gain their high school diploma, rural school teachers who only had a sixth, eighth grade education, and improve their teaching techniques. So it was a very serious endeavor. They gave sacrificed their summers and their weekends to go through this special plan. Mm -hmm. And so I had to uh, assume this responsibility. I had to learn Spanish fluently in order to be effective. And so it was a real challenge. And uh, I learned a lot about myself in mm. ways that I never would have imagined, as, as most Peace Corps volunteers will tell you they did. Mm -hmm. So it seems like your mom was supportive all throughout, even when others weren't. That's she right. was supporting you throughout. She was the one who said, this sounds like a good idea. And who knew? She'd never traveled outside mm. the United States. Mm. Of course, later when I was a foreign service officer, she traveled to all of my overseas oh, assignments. Wow. And so she had a chance to enjoy my career also. Yeah. So when you were a Peace Corps volunteer in Dominican Republic, Erin, did you ever imagine the possibility of leading this organization years later? Did you aspire I to do that? I never imagined that I would one day have the privilege and the honor oh. of being director of the Peace Corps because the Peace Corps transformed my life. I met my wife in the Dominican oh. Republic. Uh, and later mm -hmm. on, my son became a Peace Corps volunteer oh, in Nicaragua wow. when I was uh, mm -hmm. director. First time, as a matter of fact, we made a little history. I was the first time in the history of the Peace Corps that a sitting director had a son or daughter serving in the Peace Corps. Oh, wow. We did a lot of research ahead of this conversation. I did not know <laughs> that piece of information. Uh, that's really great to, to hear. So, Aaron, talking about the, the mission of the Peace Corps, mm -hmm. uh, peace building, cultural exchange, mm -hmm. What do you think is one of the most important contributions that um, the Peace Corps has made to this mission? Well, I think, first of all, for 60 years now, right? Mm -hmm. when, I was a, when I was director, we were celebrating the 50th anniversary. For 60 years, Peace Corps has promoted world peace and friendship in a world that desperately needs that. Mm -hmm. And it also provides a way for people in countries where Peace Corps volunteers serve to see an authentic mm -hmm. America, mm -hmm. not somebody from a, on a DVD or in the news or in a magazine, but somebody who's who lives with you, who speaks your language, mm -hmm. understands and appreciates and respects your culture, someone who works side by side with you, whether it's uh, teaching in schools, teaching STEM classes, or working in HIV, AIDS, awareness and prevention in clinics, 
uh, in rural areas, uh, working with people to try to maintain a better environment for farmers, for fishermen, teaching English as a second language, doing the kinds of things that make a difference in the lives of ordinary people and showing an authentic American. That's what Peace Corps has been doing for 60 years. And when you say authentic America, mm-hmm. Aaron, this makes me think about also the diversity of America mm-hmm. as well. Right? Well, that's an important part of it yeah. because you know when I first arrived in the Dominican Republic, very few people thought that I was American. Mm-hmm. They had never seen a black American in any mm-hmm. position of responsibility. Mm-hmm. And certainly very few outside of maybe soldiers uh, representing the United States of America. And so it was a chance for me to, pro- to provide a glimpse of an authentic America, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, Police Corps continues to do this. Our diversity a rich American diversity is really highlighted in, among Peace Corps volunteers. Absolutely. And during your time at the Peace Corps, Aaron, one of your many mm-hmm. legacies was the work that you did specifically in improving protections for mm-hmm. Peace Corps volunteers that were victims of sexual mm-hmm. assault. This, as I can imagine, was a very, very challenging <clears throat> process. What was the source of inspiration throughout mm-hmm. that? Well, first of all, Peace Corps is always concerned about the safety and security Mm -hmm. of our volunteers. And as a director, that's your primary concern. Mm -hmm. So I was surprised when we had this major news uh, uh, story about the sexual assault of Peace Corps volunteers and the fact that many volunteers over decades Mm -hmm. have felt they had not been treated compassionately by Peace Corps after the assault. So I was determined to bring to bear all the resources and information that we could could compile and bring forward to make sure that Peace Corps became the kind of organization that would respond to this in an appropriate way. Mm -hmm. So I was fortunate that we looked at what were the large uh, federal agencies that had been dealing with with sexual Mm -hmm. assault. And, Mm -hmm. of course, in our country, that's the U.S. Army. Mm -hmm. And uh, fortunately, I met this outstanding leader, uh, General Barry Price, who was at that time the head of HR in the Pentagon for the U.S. Army. And he offered me the services they had been using to address this issue Mm -hmm. in the military, which, of Mm -hmm. course, is a very different issue Mm -hmm. for military versus Peace Corps volunteers. But still, the wide array of experts in-house and also externally, he, he availed those to me. He made those available so that I could, could tap into those resources. And the other thing we did is that we uh, appointed the first victim's advocate in the Peace Corps. Mm. We also entered into an agreement with RAIN, which is the largest uh, organization that combats sexual assault and violence in America. Mm-hmm. And they provided a wide range of services and tra- different types of training and technical mm. assistance. Uh, that really uh, was a major factor in our ability to put together a modern responsive program. Uh, we also worked with the Congress, with the White House, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. to determine what kind of legislation. And, mm-hmm. and at the end of the day, uh, the Congress uh, and, and the president codified many of the reform, reforms that we put in place. And I'm really proud about what we mm-hmm. did, what my staff did in terms of training volunteers, our staff, uh, changing the way we looked at that made Peace Corps a really modern, forward-leaning, mm-hmm. standard-bearer for this type of activity. Yeah. And you were able to gain bipartisan support on this issue. We were. Right? We were. Yeah, I, I made it uh, made it my mission mm. to engage with both sides of the aisle, the Democrats and Republicans, on this issue, and they were very responsive, mm. and uh, it made all the difference in the world. And the bipartisan support was crucial. Absolutely. Now, Aaron, we ask all our guests mm-hmm. on the show to bring a memento. Mm-hmm something symbolic that captures a pivotal or meaningful moment in their career. So Mm -hmm. why don't you tell us what you brought uh, here today? Well, there before you is an ostrich egg, which has painted on its side a cheetah Mm. and uh, miniature elephant tusk. And my staff gave that to me when I was a mission director in South Africa Mm. uh, because they knew how much I enjoyed uh, traveling with my family on safaris. And Mm. so I had that in my office. It's always a great conversation piece, right, for anybody who visited my office during my time in South Africa. 
Absolutely. And it, it's it's a beautiful piece. So mm -hmm. thank you for, for sharing that with of us. Course. So as you just said, Erin, you were the mission director to South mm -hmm. Africa during Nelson Mandela's presidency. What was that like being an African-American representing mm -hmm. the United States? And Erin, we just talked about this idea of authentic America and what does that mean in South Africa at this time particularly? Well, to provide some context. So I'm in South Africa leading the USAID program mm -hmm. at the time of President Nelson Mandela. Mm -hmm in his administration. Mm -hmm. And President Mandela had a marvelous friendship and partnership with President Clinton. And all members of our cabinet visited South Africa during the Man Mandela years. Mm -hmm. So it was, a, it was an environment where a lot could be done to support the democratic transformation of that country. Mm -hmm. And the USAID program, our strategy and our focus was aimed at supporting President Mandela in that democratic transformation. Mm -hmm. Uh, also, it was a time when here we are in a country where we have two Nobel laureates. We have President Mandela mm -hmm. and we also have Archbishop Desmond Tutu, mm -hmm. who was the head of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, mm -hmm. which AID also supported and worked closely with. Mm -hmm. So it was a time when uh, they recognized, South African leaders recognized the involvement of the black community of mm -hmm. America mm -hmm. in the anti-apartheid movement. Mm -hmm. uh, the Black Caucus had led the, led the way in trying to free Nelson Mandela when he was in prison for decades. Mm -hmm. Uh, and also combating apartheid. So it was a very privileged time, I would say, as a black American to be in a country where they recognized what your community had done to contribute to this democratic transformation. Yeah, and is it true that Hillary mm -hmm. Clinton came to visit during your time in South she Africa? She came twice. Twice. Uh, first time she came with her daughter Chelsea mm -hmm. and when she was first lady. And uh, we had a marvelous visit. Uh, mm -hmm. She traveled all over the South Africa. She gave a magnificent speech at the University of Cape Town. And uh, I have a photograph that I share with you of mm -hmm. me introducing her to a very important housing project in a township mm -hmm. outside of Cape Town. Mm -hmm. It was a housing project that was uh, created and led by homeless women mm -hmm. who built their own homes. And so we introduced the first lady there. She actually you know, put a, laid a few bricks at mm -hmm. the housing project. Uh, warm, enthusiastic uh, reception for her. Also, while she was there, we had introduced uh, a couple of months previous to her arrival, Sesame Street into South Africa, <laughs> working with South African mm. uh, Broadcasting Corporation. Mm. And so she and Chelsea taught a lesson in, in the famous township of Soweto in a primary school of Sesame Street. Mm. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. Mm. So Erin, let's talk a bit more about mentorship, mm -hmm. something that I deeply care about. I'm involved with different mm -hmm. organizations mentoring students, uh, early career professionals, mm -hmm. but especially women of color. And you've recently published a book, The Young Black Leader's Guide mm -hmm. to Successful Career in right. International Affairs. Mm -hmm. and you talk in this book about, about mentorship, and I want to know more about what inspired you to, to write this book. Well, first of all, Having been a professional in the foreign affairs arena mm. for 20 mm. plus years, I know there is a lack of diversity mm. in foreign affairs across mm. all of our agencies. Mm. And uh, a couple of years ago, uh, two distinguished diplomats, uh, Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield, who's now the our ambassador to the United Nations, yeah. and uh, Bill Burns, Ambassador mm. Bill Burns, who's now the director of the CIA, mm -hmm. uh, they, wrote a, they wrote an op-ed talking about the, the fact that the lack of diversity in our foreign affairs arena in our agencies was really a weakness in terms mm -hmm. of our foreign policy, mm -hmm. and that needed to be corrected. Mm -hmm. And I had uh, had a dream, actually, for over many years of writing a book that would mm -hmm. uh, highlight and tell the story of many of the African-American giants that I had worked with mm -hmm. in, at AID and with the State mm -hmm. Department, et cetera, the MCC, mm -hmm. 
And so fortunately, I had a, a wonderful colleague, Professor Jennifer Brinkerhoff of the University of uh, George Washington University, the Elliott School, mm-hmm. and she agreed to co-author the book with me. Mm-hmm. And so, and then at the same time, uh, she brought along one of her brilliant graduate students, uh, mm-hmm. Taylor Amos, and so we created an intergenerational dialogue mm-hmm. between Taylor and myself to frame the book. But the real story of the book are the stories of these giants, people who have, you know, like Linda Thomas Greenfield, who have really uh, served with distinction and made a real difference in terms of American foreign policy and international development. Mm. And so we selected about 30 of these giants, both in business, government, mm. the military, uh, global corporations, to tell their story. And they were so generous. They, we had mm. hours of interviews mm. with them. Uh, we interviewed, for example, the legendary uh, and new president of Spelman College, Dr. Helene Gale, Gale of course. a real trailblazer. And so they shared their stories. And of course, interestingly enough, I had worked with many of these people for many years, and I thought I knew their stories, <laughs> but actually I didn't know the full story, right? right? And so we were able to, through their generosity and and uh, share their stories and lessons learned. It's a real blueprint for how you can be mm-hmm. successful in the foreign affairs arena. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we're very happy about that book. Yeah. And you mentioned Helene Gale, president of Spelman College, mm-hmm. who was on the board at CSIS. Um, curious, Aaron, any mm-hmm. favorite interviews? 30 Giants, of <laughs> course, so it's hard <laughs> to pick, but any memorable You're going to uh, give interviews? me a lot of trouble here. I can't, I can't pick out <laughs> any giant, but I can mention, I'll mention a couple, right? Mention a couple, sounds uh, good. <laughs> I think uh, certainly our interviews with Linda Thomas-Greenfield mm-hmm. were magnificent. Uh, Helene Gale, mm. uh, Ambassador Johnny Carson, who's now, of course, responsible for uh, carrying out the implementation of the agreements that mm. were arrived at with the recent African summit, mm. and who's a, a legendary ambassador, served in four different African countries, and mm. probably the most knowledgeable person about Africa in the United States. Mm. Uh, General Barry Price, mm-hmm. you know, his, his distinguished military career. So uh, I know I'm leaving out somebody who's going to be angry with me when they see this uh, this recording, but see, you trapped me into that. <laughs> That's my fault. That's my fault. You can blame me. That's okay. Um, what I thought was very unique about the book, Erin, is mm-hmm. bringing that multi-generational diversity. I'm curious mm-hmm. where that came, the idea came about of bringing in the graduate student, Taylor. Mm-hmm. Actually, uh, your co-author, Jennifer, that you mentioned, I had yeah. the opportunity to meet her oh, um, a couple of months ago. Mm-hmm. I did a, a keynote at, at GW for the Inclusive Excellence mm-hmm. Conference. But I'm curious how the idea came about of that multi-generational piece, because it's very unique. It was Jennifer's idea yeah. because, first of all, we thought about what's our target audience. We're trying to mm-hmm. encourage uh, new graduates and, mm-hmm. and mid-career individuals to consider and build upon their career Mm -hmm. in foreign affairs, in the foreign affairs community. And so we thought the idea of talking to someone like Taylor, Mm -hmm. who's starting out her career, who's Mm -hmm. now she's been three years into her career Mm -hmm. in in international development, and because she also would have a different generational perspective, right, Mm -hmm. different from mine when I started out. And it turned out to be exactly the right format and uh, it ended up being a really a glorious journey and we were able to highlight lessons Mm -hmm. learned and lay out a blueprint of what we think uh, the new generation will will consider Mm -hmm. in considering a career in in the foreign affairs arena. Absolutely. And we talked about mentorship. Mm -hmm. What's linked to that as well as relationship Mm -hmm. building. Uh, One of my favorite stories about you, Aaron, is the time that you spent uh, with the Chicago librarians, right? (laughs) Uh, You you were very strategic uh, about getting to to know them, Uh, and they would save you the new science fiction mm -hmm. books, right, for you to to read first. Um, And I'm sure that's one of many examples where Mm -hmm. you've used, again, relationship uh, building for your personal and career growth as well. Mm -hmm. How has that carried 
on for the rest of your career? Well, I think that uh, anyone who's been successful in their career, whether it's in business or government Mm -hmm. or in the nonprofit world, you know that you have to have a team. Mm -hmm. And so relationships end up being the most important aspect of having a successful career. And I learned early on, early on in my career that when you're facing challenges and leading an organization, you want to have the smartest people in the room, you know, to paraphrase Hamilton on Broadway, right, in the room <laughs> where it happens. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you're going to have challenges, and you need to have smart people, smarter than you, in the room to assist you and really make sure that you're responsive in the right way for the mm-hmm. particular organization, for the goal you're trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. So I thought relationships were always, always important. And not only that. Uh, you need to have relationships both internally to your particular organization, mm-hmm. but you need to have external. You mm-hmm. need to have an external network of people you can turn to uh, who can enrich your career and, and provide insights and lessons learned mm-hmm. for dealing with challenges uh, no matter what you might face. And so, I mean, to me, relationships are very important. At the same time, I was very fortunate in my career mm-hmm. that I had exceptional mentors, people who actually opened the door mm-hmm. for me and gave me opportunities to stretch myself to take on challenges that I never have, would have imagined taking on. Mm-hmm. And so I've always tried to be a good mentor. I've always tried to uh, lower the ladder to help the people coming mm-hmm. up behind me, and uh, I think that's absolutely essential to do. Yeah. And that's another aspect of our book that we tried mm-hmm. to emphasize. We talk a lot about mentoring mm-hmm. and mentorship in the book. Yeah. And all of our giants, by the way, are all superb mentors. Each mm-hmm. and every one of them mm-hmm. valued this, and it was something that they were eager to talk about. Yeah. And giving back, and right? Giving back. Giving back. Um, I'm sure um, everyone will, will mm-hmm. want to, to read the book, but if you mm-hmm. could just share with us a couple of pieces of advice that mm-hmm. you would share with uh, students or early mm-hmm. career professionals that are trying to break in to the international affairs space. Well, I think there's a couple of things that are universal mm-hmm. and that all of the giants talked about. First of all, the work. Mm-hmm. Learn your business, right? Become a craftsman in your business. Uh, understand what your colleagues do. When I was at USAID, I wanted to know what healthcare workers, I wanted to know what lawyers did AID, contract officers. I wanted to know the full body of mm-hmm. work because if, first of all, if you're gonna be a leader in the future, you need to understand what the various members of your team mm-hmm. actually do and, and walk in their shoes. Yeah, so know the work mm-hmm. and have respect for the work. Uh, number two, be a risk taker. Mm. Raise your hand and volunteer. Right. I mean, uh, the best thing I ever did was volunteer to be a Peace Corps volunteer. Mm -hmm. Right. And it was a high risk proposition for a young boy growing up on the south side of Chicago. Uh, And all of us, all the people in the book, they were all risk takers. Right. And uh, secondly, you need to be resilient Mm -hmm. in your career. You need to understand that you have to bounce back from Mm -hmm. from adversity. Mm -hmm. No one gets through any career without some adversity and some problems and challenges. So be resilient. Find ways to use your network to help you. Uh, become resilient. And then the other thing, of course, is uh, you need to be able to have a network. And I mentioned mm-hmm. uh, uh, in my previous comments uh, the importance of an, both an internal and an external Absolutely. network, both for career development and also just to have sounding boards for the things you need to tap people for their expertise. And then the last thing I guess I would say is that uh, embrace failure. Mm-hmm. Now, that's, in a way, not something that we support in America. We don't <laughs> we don't talk about failure. We only talk about success. That's right. But uh, the fact of the matter is, and this is something that uh, a great quote from his book on leadership, uh, Secretary, former Secretary of Defense Robert Gates said. Mm. He said that any leader who has not experienced failure in his or her career mm. has not really had formal training in leadership. Mm. And I believe mm. that. You know, I know everybody, all of our gen, we've all had 
uh, experiences and failures in our career that we had to bounce back from. We had to be resilient. And uh, that's important. So embrace failure. Failure is one of the greatest lessons Mm. that you can learn from. And you can use it to shape your career in the future. Yeah, absolutely. It's connected to sports, Aaron, what we talked about <laughs> earlier, right? I mean, you have right. to lose whether you're games or matches yeah. to be able again you're going to, to, lose. To, to, to be resilient, right? Yeah. Um, I love some of what you've shared, you know, being a risk taker, mm-hmm. being resilient, embracing failures. Erin, um, you worked in so many different sectors, uh, whether it be public or private, but there was always something <clears throat> at the core of all the work that you did and what you advocated for, mm-hmm. which was diversity, right? Why do you believe diversity is so critical across multi-sectors? Well, first of all, I think the diversity of our nation is one of our great strengths. Mm-hmm. And let me just read to you a quote from, from my book, uh, my uh, memoir, Unimagined Life. Mm. I've always believed that America's multiracial and multi-ethnic diversity is one of our great strengths. Mm. And so it is crucial that we seek ways to pursue diversity across all organizations. I have always tried to be proactive in such efforts throughout my multi-sector career. I just believe, you know, it's really, mm. really essential. Uh, and, and going back to what I mentioned earlier about the, the uh, very important uh, op-ed that uh, Ambassador uh, Thomas Greenfield and, mm-hmm. and Burns wrote, they talked about the importance of diversity mm-hmm. in our foreign affairs agencies. We need to pursue that. Yeah. It's, it's a national security yeah. imperative. It is. We right? need to tap the, the talent of all Americans. Absolutely. All Americans, just as you said mm-hmm. and earlier, authentic America, all authentic facets America. Right. of America, all, um, all the diversity of it. Now, Aaron, uh, before we wrap up our conversation, mm-hmm. we like to ask our guests uh, three questions every episode of Driving Impact, <laughs> rapid fire style. So are you ready? I'm ready. All right. Okay. First question, what are three words you would use to describe your career? Let me put it in three sections. Okay, okay three sections. Okay. <laughs> all right. I think, first of all, entrepreneurial and open-minded. That's the first, that's the first part. Second would be uh, a multi-sector career broad in scope. Mm. And then the third would be a team builder who builds diverse teams. Diverse teams, and that's connected to what mm-hmm. we're saying earlier, always advocated for diversity. Mm-hmm. Aaron, in your opinion, what does it mean to be an American? Well, I've always been proud to serve America in my various capacities, and uh, this is America, America's great democratic experiment is, is historic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that we're the most unique in terms of creating a multi-ethnic, multi-racial society that works in a democratic fashion, and we need to continue to pursue that. And when I think about America and our in our journey, this you know this great experiment, I think about something that uh, House Democratic Leader Hakeem Jeffries often says. Mm-hmm. I want to read that quote to you. Okay. He says that uh, in an interview I saw about a year ago, many times in America, after significant social progress, we confronted backlash. And we emerged from that backlash to continue to make more progress. The framers of the Constitution were not perfect men, and they did not promise Mm. a perfect journey, but they did promise a journey towards a more perfect union. Mm. And I think that really encapsulates, you know, America's journey, the importance of our democracy, Mm. the importance of of the the shining example that we provide to the world of a successful multi-ethnic, multiracial country. And lastly, Aaron, what is giving you hope right now? Well, I was privileged to be director of the Peace Corps during the 50th anniversary. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so I traveled to many countries and traveled across many states in celebration of the Peace Corps. 
And what I saw was inspirational and gives me great hope. Mm-hmm. I saw young Amer- primarily young Americans, you know, not all young Americans, but primarily <laughs> young Americans, uh, teaching in schools, teaching English, uh, mm-hmm. teaching STEM uh, uh, classes, uh, working in HIV/AIDS, working in malaria prevention, uh, helping farmers, uh, helping fishermen, uh, promoting women's literacy and girls' literacy, uh, trying to grow small uh, organizations that could provide credit and and support to small businesses. And there they were, shoulder to shoulder with their counterparts, speaking the language, embracing the culture, respecting the culture. And when I saw them, I knew that our generation, the baby boomer generation, uh, that's about to pass the baton to this next generation, right? They're ready because they're courageous, they're idealistic, they are innovative, uh, they're tech savvy, and they're prepared to take on the challenges that we face in this world today. And so I'm very optimistic, I'm very hopeful about that. The next generation of leaders. The next generation of leaders. They are ready to take the baton on. Absolutely. Aaron, it's been such a pleasure to chat with you today. Thank you so much for sharing your story Mm -hmm. with us. Thank you for your generous time and Mm -hmm. thank you for your service as well. Well, thank you. This is a pleasure. I'm always delighted to be at CSIS, one of the great institutions in this country. You do so much to promote what America is truly all about. So it's a great pleasure to be here with you today. Thank you. Thank you so much. And Mm -hmm. thanks again for the beautiful (laughs) memento. It was great to hear the, the story as well. Very good. Thank you for joining our conversation with the Honorable Aaron S. Williams on his multi-sectoral career in peace building and diplomacy. Do you want to hear more exclusive stories from policy leaders? Be sure to follow Driving Impact on YouTube, Spotify, or CSIS.org.